Timothy, chapter 4, this evening. Close out this uh, installment, this session in 1 Timothy with another of Paul's trustworthy statements, another of his faithful words. I'm going to read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. But I have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Prescribe and teach these things. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would continue to bless this Lord's Day. Give us more of the manna of your word. And help us that we should not desire the meats of Egypt in preference to your holy word. We pray that your spirit would guide us as we consider this passage, that you would plant your word deep within our hearts, and it might produce a harvest of righteousness and godliness for your glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse... Um, Eight, I have to confess, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because Paul says that uh, bodily discipline is of little value. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, no, he, he's, you know, he's using a metaphor here, and I think it, it, uh, it's good for us to consider um, what we value with regard to our, our own being, especially in our culture where uh, physical exercise has become a, a multi-billion dollar industry. And I have often thought and, and think that it's, it's, a, it's an, an outcome of, of sin, the corruption that is in the world, that you, you can't lose weight by reading a book. I, I think in the, in the New Earth it will be that you can, you can read and the caloric content of the book you're reading will actually cause you to, to lose more weight. So for example, a, a chapter of Joel Osteen is like a bag of cheese curls. A John Piper book would be like a nice brisk walk around the neighborhood and an essay by John Owen would be like a 5K run. That's my dream. But uh, the reality is that, that we do tend to exercise our bodies or if, if our personality is such, we exercise our minds. But, but Paul is addressing something completely different and he's, he's, he's telling us that there's something that is of greater value than either higher than physical or intellectual discipline is the discipline of godliness. Because it has profit, it has benefit for this life as well as the life to come. And that is really what his um, trustworthy statement is drawing us to in verse 10. It is for this we labor and strive. And that's, that's tying back to verse 8 about physical discipline. And, you know, I think we look around and we see that the market for physical exercise is indeed billions and billions of dollars. 
But it really has been something that mankind has done throughout its history. The, the Olympics, of course, were started by the Greeks, the word gymnasium. The, the whole idea of that physical exercise comes from ancient Greece. So Paul was well aware of the, of the running, of the lifting, of the throwing of heavy objects, of, of the obsession with physical exercise, just as we see in our own day. To, to, I think the theme of this whole passage, as we talked about last week, is focus. Verse 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables, but rather discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Focus. A focus is important in physical discipline. Focus is also important in intellectual discipline. But we don't really give much thought to the need to focus on the discipline of godliness. Physical exercise, even though he says it's of, of little value, it is of value, obviously. Because physical exercise preserves good health, which helps us to remove an obstacle or a distraction, and that is ill health. You know, if we're supposed to focus and not to be distracted, as we saw last week, well, physical infirmity is very much a distraction. I've, I've shared this anecdote before. Some of you do remember Larry Moore, who was in our church for many years, and he suffered a, a fall, and, and he severed C7, and he was paralyzed from his chest down. He had only very little bit of use of his, of his arms and, and not very coordinated at that. And I remember visiting him in the hospital after his accident, and another pastor was there visiting him, and, and the other pastor said, that, said, Larry, now God has taken your body out of the way. And my thought was, his body has never been more in the way. Because his body will no longer do what his brain tells it to do. It will now be a distraction to him for the rest of his life. He will not be able to go where he wants to go. He will not be able to get up and take care of himself. And he didn't for the last six or seven years. Now, I understood what the pastor was saying, you know, that, that now you can focus on your spirit, focus on your mind. But the reality is, if we do allow our bodies to decay, if we don't take care of our bodies, we are actually putting distractions in front of ourselves. Concern for our health ought to be a, a healthy concern so that our health doesn't become a distraction, something that, that takes our focus. But physical exercise can also become an obsession. And we see that in our world around us. We were talking about that on the, on the way in to church this evening, that, you know, that, that there is actually a, a neurochemical dependency that gets set up when you, when you reach a certain threshold to the point that if you don't continue to exercise, you actually suffer from withdrawals. Intellectual discipline stimulates critical thinking, which guards against the distractions of worldly and empty chatter. You know, Paul warns us, as we saw last week, he warns Timothy in both of those letters, and also Titus, of the things that, that are not to be allowed to detract and to distract from the ministry of the Word. But if, if you're not exercising your mind, if you're not reading some, some, some weighty materials, you don't know to recognize worldly and empty chatter. And you're very easily moved away by the, the popular 
the talking heads that we hear on the radio and on television and on our computers. So intellectual discipline is also very valuable. However, knowledge puffs up into arrogance. And, and there's a danger there. There's a, there's a place that, that one crosses to where the amount, is like Felix said to, to Paul, your, your great learning has made you mad. Well, often the case is your great learning has made you proud, has made you arrogant. Knowledge puffs up. And so we see that there are limitations to the benefits of both physical and intellectual exercise. There's a place at which, because of the sin that indwells us, when we go beyond in our, in our focus on physical exercise or intellectual discipline, we've, be, we've gone beyond that which is healthy. We've moved into a realm of obsession or of arrogance, but with spiritual discipline, there are no upper limits. There's no, there's no way a person can be too godly in truth because the fundamental aspect of any human being in the pursuit of godliness must be humility because it presents a fallen human creature with almighty holy God. It's very hard to get proud when you come face to face with the living God. And so Paul is saying, you know, you, you, you got to exercise. Later on, he's going to tell Timothy, you know, take some wine because of your stomach. It's not that Paul's not concerned with Timothy, Timothy's health. He's just saying that that's not where it's at. And, and even the intellectual discipline, and of course, Paul was, was very much interested in that. There's a limit to the benefit of that as well. But spiritual discipline of godliness has no upper limit. The word discipline itself suggests an action or an attitude that by force of habit has become ingrained into the pattern of one's life. That's a discipline. A discipline is something that, that you do with really no thought. It becomes part of the rhythm of your life. Bodily discipline and mental exercise both have thresholds, hurdles that one must reach before it becomes a discipline. That, that's really my problem and has always been my problem with physical exercise. I never get to that point where it isn't miserable. I, I don't know that anybody does, but they say they do. But, but you know that if you exercise, if you begin to exercise, that there's a time at which it is very, very difficult and your body is, is really rebelling against you. And then you reach a point, and this is where you, you reach a discipline, where it becomes more natural. The same is true with mental exercise. I've often talked to people about you know, how they, they, they'd, they'd like to spend more time reading, but they don't. Because it takes an effort to get to a place where it becomes a discipline. Yeah, I, I just don't have the time. Well, it, you have to get to the place where you make the time because you have the time to do that which is important to you, whether it's bodily exercise, whether it's mental exercise, there's a, there's a hurdle. And the same is true, I think, with the discipline of godliness. It's not something that we can simply pick up on Sunday mornings and maybe give it a little bit more adrenaline on Sunday evenings, and then let it just flag away on Monday morning. It doesn't work that way. 
Again, it's, it's analogous to these other disciplines. You, you, can't, you can't read a little bit on Sunday afternoon. You can't spend 30 minutes on the treadmill on Saturday evening and call that the discipline of exercise. It doesn't work that way. And, and so the analogy that Paul is drawing here is that, that, that we need to cultivate in, in ourselves, in our lives, the pursuit of godliness. And, and to understand how we do that, Paul gives us a great deal of instruction in his letters. We're cultivating an eternal view. As he says that bodily discipline is of only little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I think one of the essential elements of the discipline of godliness is really meditative. And we think, well, that makes it easy. No, we're not good at that either. Especially in our generation when there's so much mental stimulus in our lives. We don't like to hear the sound of silence. And we're not meditative. In fact, we don't like to hear ourselves think. And so to say that it's meditative is not to say that it's any easier than physical or mental. It, it is not. But it is meditative in the sense that it is bringing our minds into focus to an eternal reality. And not just that which our eyes see, but that which our faith knows to be real and to be coming. Verse 10 and there is, of course, whenever, whenever Paul says it is a trustworthy statement in verse 9, deserving full acceptance, the literal Greek is it is a faithful word. There's always an argument in the commentaries whether Paul's talking about that which went before or that which is coming. I don't know that it matters. Apparently, these faithful words were like refrigerator magnet verses in the first century. They, they were things that were said, maybe in their hymns, maybe in their, in their statements of faith. I take it as that which follows, because it tends to match a faithful word that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 1 regarding God's purpose. But Paul says, for it is this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope. Now that's, that's really what we're getting at. The fixing. What, what is the focus of your life? The trajectory, the, the laser as it were. What is it fixed on? Is it fixed on financial success? Is it fixed on physical health? Is it fixed on personal happiness? Or is it fixed on the hope of that which is to come? Hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men. It is for this, Paul says, we labor and strive. Thus, the exercise of discipline. Labor, working, striving. Elsewhere in Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, fixing our hope on the living God. Thus, the attitude of spiritual discipline, the discipline of godliness. It's an echo of Paul's faithful word that we find in Hebrews chapter 12 where the author says, let us run with endurance 
the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Fixing our eyes. Colossians chapter 3, again an, an echo of what he's saying. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. That's the attitude of the discipline of godliness. And you can see it's meditative. You, you, you can't go out and run it. And you can't sit and read it. It's, it's a, a habit of mind where in reading Scripture and in meditating on God's promises and what He has done in fulfillment of those promises, in a sense, we ingrain the truth in our mind that what we see with our eyes is indeed temporal. Paul says that the form of this world is passing away. And even our bodies. Really, it doesn't matter how much we exercise. We cannot reverse the process of aging. We cannot prevent the onset of death. And so when we realize that that, that, that is indeed vanity of vanities, we, we say, okay, there's, there's the benefit of physical exercise. I'm going to try to, to gain that benefit, but not at the cost of a much greater benefit. There's a great benefit in intellectual study in, in exercising our minds, I, I personally think, and I could be completely wrong, I haven't done any statistical analysis, but it seems to me that there is far more cases of dementia and senility and Alzheimer's today than in previous generations. And, and of course, uh, the medical community says it may be because of, of what we eat and all of the additives that go into our food. Perhaps it's, it's heavy metals that are, that are in our food and our water. Or perhaps it's because we don't use our minds much anymore. Everything comes to us prepackaged. And it just seems to me a coincidence that the, the incidence of, of mental deterioration, in, in our history at least, coincides with the advent of the television set, the computer screen, we don't really exercise our minds. And so I think there's, there's even a physical benefit of exercising your mind. But the spiritual benefit, what good is it if, if, I, if I know all things? A profound mysteries. If indeed I have run the 5K of, of reading John Owen and, and absorbing that intellectual calories into my system, if I don't understand the will and the works of God, if it has made me no more godly in my thinking, if it has not conformed me into the image of Jesus Christ, it too is just vanity, even more so than physical exercise. So Paul says that our hope and what we labor and strive after, what we exercise ourselves after, is the living God. He says, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, I can't pass that passage up because it is controversial. And so I'm going to spend a few moments dealing with verse 10. And, and um, I, I will not say that what I'm going to say is exhaustive. But hopefully, 
It will help guide your thoughts as you read that. You've probably read that verse and wondered, what does he mean, especially of believers? That seems obvious, doesn't it? In what sense is God the Savior of all men, especially of believers? Well, it is the favorite verse of universalists. God is the Savior of all men. And indeed, universalists who teach that all men will be saved tend to go to verses like this. And there aren't many, but there are a few. And this is one of them that they'll hold up and say, you see, God will save all men. The problem, of course, is that universalism is not a biblical doctrine. It's very clear that the Bible teaches that there will be those who will not attain to salvation. That there will be an eternal perdition, a, a, a chasm of never-ending fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That there will be punishment for all eternity for those who reject the grace of God. And certainly, universalism is not the general thrust of Paul's teaching. He does make a distinction between those whom God has had mercy upon and those whom He has not. Between those who have been made vessels of mercy and of honor and those who have not. So universalism can't be found in this verse or this verse really can't be found in Scripture. But in addition to that, it's focusing only one thing that Paul says and it doesn't explain the last clause, especially those who believe. See, the universalist can't understand or explain how is it that God is the Savior of all men, but then makes a distinction in, in a salvation for believers? Now, some people have gone to say that, that what that means is that those who do not believe will eventually be annihilated. Their souls will be wiped out, and therefore they will not suffer punishment, nor will they experience the blessings of heaven. Well, again, there's no backing for that teaching in Scripture it's simply conjecture. It's also the favorite verse of Arminians who teach that God has provided salvation for all men, each individual human being in the world. And only believing is necessary for a sinner to avail himself of that salvation. Salvation's out there free to all if you believe. And certainly this is more plausible than the universalists, except that that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say that God has made salvation available to all men. He says He is the Savior of all men. And if He is the Savior of all men, we must understand in what sense all men are thus saved. Because when God is something, that is done. It is accomplished. So the, the Arminian doesn't really address the other, the flip side. The problem with the universalist is he addresses the Savior of all men, but not the especially of believers. The Arminian is the mirror image. He says, oh, look at this, you must believe. That, that's what it takes. But then in what sense is God the Savior of all men? In what sense do men who don't believe experience the salvation of God? It's a tough verse for Calvinists. And really what they have to say about it is, is not very edifying. For example, John Calvin teaches that, that Paul is talking about common grace here. The grace in which God 
provides rain on the just and the unjust and the seasons and the harvests and common grace. But that, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's, he's, not sick. He's, not, he's not saying that we labor and strive fixing our hope, certainly not on rain. We've had plenty of that. We're actually fixing our hope on maybe a little bit of sunshine. That's not, that doesn't drive us that God is a God who provides rain to the just and the unjust. No, this is, this is deeper than that, and, and the Calvinist struggles with that, but I think it, it's best to simply take Paul and the Bible's general meaning of all men as meaning from every nation, without distinction and without exception. We must always remember that salvation had always been presented as being oriented to Israel. And within Israel, and that's what Paul is dealing with, with many of these false teachers, there arose the belief that salvation was only ever to be to Israel. Rather than understanding the promises of God from Genesis 3 all the way through, that salvation was to be to Israel, through Israel, to the world. And that's Paul's gospel. So when he says all men, he doesn't mean each and every individual human being. He means all mankind without distinction. Because as he says elsewhere, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And the word especially, the one that's what causes us most problems in this verse. There are, of course, a variety of meanings for the Greek word. And I did do some research. And there is... Uh, a body of study of that word in the extra-biblical literature as well as Paul's usage that would justify translating not by especially but by particularly more of an explanatory explanation that he is the savior of all men, that is, of those who believe. Now, I'm not going to go quite that far because the normal translation of the word is especially it singles out a subset of a larger group. And so the verse still presents us with a challenge. And whenever we're presented with those challenges, hermeneutically, we need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We know that the universalist is wrong because God is not going to save every single human being. We believe the Arminian is wrong because God is sovereign. And what he does, he does to completion. And frankly, the thought that I bring anything, even my faith, to the table robs God of the glory of my salvation. But we don't understand how God is dealing with the nations of the world. All that we know is that from the perspective of the pastorate, and remember this is a pastoral epistle, it is faith in Jesus Christ that manifests the salvation of God in any man. So Timothy, Paul says, God is the Savior of all men. God alone is the Savior, not any other God and not any works of all mankind. But for you as a pastor, how will you know, how will you, how will you believe that this man or that woman is in fact saved? Well, only by their faith. Only by their profession of trust, living in the living God through Jesus Christ. It is that for which we, in the pastorate, labor and strive. 
It is that which we, as believers, labor and strive, fixing our hope on Jesus Christ. It's December 30th. Finally, I said at least three times yesterday that it was December 30th, so it is finally December 30th, and I'm now correct. Tomorrow, there will be people who are making their New Year's resolution, and um, I, I don't do that, and I imagine you probably don't do that, and yet we all kind of do, anyhow. It's something about the changing of the new year. We can, we can say, you know what, it, it's just another day, and, and really it is, you know, it's an arbitrary it's not tied to the celestial motions or anything. It's just a day. December 31st goes into January 1st, but in our minds, we think of a year that has passed and a year that is coming. In, in our company, we're thinking that perhaps 2019 will be a little bit drier than 2018. But you know what? The, the weather patterns don't observe December 31st, and it's going to rain this week all week. <laughs> and so we make these resolutions in our minds because we think, you know, in the new year, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to do this better. You know, maybe you're thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. Or, or maybe you're thinking, I'm going to read John Owen. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm going to lose 20 pounds by reading John Owen. <laughs> I would suggest that if you do try to exercise, carry John Owen with you, you know. For this we labor and strive, the discipline of godliness. Physical exercise is good. The discipline of study is good. But neither hold out the benefits of the pursuit of godliness. So if you're considering the coming year and this passage of for what we labor and strive, then let's consider Paul's words to the Philippians. Chapter 3, and very autobiographical and yet intending that we should imitate Paul in this. Beginning in verse 7, Paul writes, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, and here's the resolution, but I press on, in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, you know our frame, you know our minds, our strengths, our weaknesses. 
or what we consider to be our strengths and what you know to be our weaknesses. And sometimes they are the same thing. We ask for humility and for the strength of the Holy Spirit to indeed keep our focus. And if we look at the coming year, that it might be one in the beginning, perhaps, of many years in which our mind is fixed on pressing on to the upward call of Christ Jesus, fixing our hope on you, our living God, our Savior, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom with regard to the exercise of our bodies and of our minds, but that you might fix in us the purpose of disciplining ourselves for godliness, for your glory, and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the benediction from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.